this is Sabrina Marie, host of Unbuilding Abundance Success Series. Our primetime national mind focuses on the vote. Yes, we'll all be voting in a few weeks. And my guest is former Governor Don Siegelman. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, CNN, New York Times, MSNBC, you name it. His book is called Stealing Our Democracy, How a Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation. We talked about current events. We're in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a political season. Then he talks about what he sees going into the future and some of the issues going on in our world right now. Awesome interview. Don and I are coming at you right now. I want to welcome you back to the show. And um, I know that there's so much going on, not just with the election, but after the election we have the votes, whether to keep or repeal Obamacare. We've got the Supreme Court stuff going on now. It's just, uh, has evolved confusion. Maybe you can make some sense of it all. Well, I doubt if I can make any more sense than we already know, but... uh I will certainly give it a try. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, what, think, uh, what do you see us? What do you see with even a pandemic? I, mean, I haven't even mentioned that. And and uh, people still uh, dying and then a denial from the Oval Office. And it's got a lot of stuff that makes no sense. Well, I, I think the voters uh, have more sense than politicians give them credit for. Um I think they have they have sorted things out in their own minds. Uh, it it seems to me, and I'm again I'm I'm highly prejudiced uh, against the current president, and you know, for Joe Biden, I've known him since the early seventies, so um, he would have been my first choice all along, um, but. Uh, that being said, I think voters are, 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 have figured out that Donald Trump is simply not the leader that that they might have thought he would be. Um, there is, you know, less discontent uh, for his handling of, you know, trade deals and the economy, and of course, the, you know, the people generally like a strong leader, so they. They have not objected to his, uh, uh, you know, his uh, bombastic approach to Iran or to China, and, and um, you know, they, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the country who, uh, and including members of organized labor and 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 and, and workers, poor, you know, less. Uh, less informed workers in general who feel like and have felt like immigrants were taking their jobs away. So, you know, we've got all that, all of, but still the the majority of people in the country are ready to send Donald Trump back to New York or, um, if we're fortunate, to a um, grand jury and a jury trial in southern New York. But, um, you know, Again, we've got an election to go through, so I could be proven wrong. But I, I do believe that you know, suburban women, white women, or uh, who have voted Republican, are not going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, there are a number of white businessmen 
uh, who have been for Donald Trump, who are not going to vote for him this time. And I've, I've done my own survey of, of, of people who work at grocery stores and meat markets and fish markets and um, people that I would have, would have expected to be 100% for Donald Trump, and they're not. Uh, so they're either not going to vote or they're not going to vote for Trump. And so uh, I, I believe that uh, Donald Trump's days are numbered, and I think the vote for Joe Biden will be uh, of such magnitude that, that no credible claim of an election being stolen will be bought by the American people. After the election now, we're still in Corona and we'll probably be that way for the next year and a half. Um, even with the vaccine, it's going to take a bit of time to see whether it'll work for the majority. And so, say we get a new administration in there, um, well, we'll be dealing with that still, along with other things. Uh, because most Americans who had a job aren't working now, or have been furloughed so much they don't have any benefits, what do you, do you yeah, think about the Affordable Care Act? Swingo, <laughs> there, there's going to have to be a, a wholly new approach, and one that really should have been taken during the Obama administration in 2008 when he was trying to patch up the economy then. And um, I criticized the uh, Recovery Act at that point because, you know, while you know, bailing out the banks may have been may have been important to maintain stability uh, on Wall Street. What was important was to give people who were out of work uh, a job, a sense of pride, a sense of accomplishment, and a way of earning some money for their for their family. And of course, it would have to be government uh, sponsored and government paid for. But you know, we we did this in 1935 during the Great Depression that with with uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and um, you know, they were at first they were young people. I think you know, in their 20s, who were hired at a dollar a day, and um, and then they added veterans uh, who were coming back from the war to that that program. But some three million people were put to work during that period of time, and it was not just um, a an economic move, but it was one to 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 give men and women, you know, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of pride, a sense that they were taking care of their families, and it obviously would have reduced depression and suicide. And so when when we have a new administration, this is going to give us this, another chance to address the issue of, you know, what we, what can we do for kids who, you know, starting in the eighth grade, who need a job uh, to keep them out of trouble, who need a job to so they can earn a little money, so they can understand, you know, how, you know, how this capitalist system that we live in, how it all works. Uh, give them a chance to earn some spending money so they don't have to uh, resort to to other means to support their you know what they what they want to do and it keeps them out of trouble if you give them a job in the afternoon after school um, of course we don't know what school is going to look like but 
You know, so we, we need to start early in our in our recovery program uh, this next time. And we need to – there are plenty of jobs that need to be done that benefit the, the public at large that the government could pay for and at the same time put people to work and, and again, uh, give them a sense of uh, accomplishment. So I'm a big believer in uh, creating government – funded jobs, uh, whether it's in, you know, working in, you know, Appalachia, working in poor communities, working in inner cities, working in other countries, whether it's, uh, you know, you know, cleaning up streams and, and or, 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 you know, building new roads or railroads or fast rail or whatever we need to do, uh, but we can put people to work so that uh, that we've moved the economy along and hold families together. I had recently, and I'm sure you've seen the headlines of people who have had to go through the COVID tests and whatnot and have to be hospitalized and come out with almost $100,000 in debt. Um, do you believe that if they had uh, done a little bit more with uh, the Affordable Care Act back in 2008, 2012, uh, we would be in a better place. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if they had listened to John Conyers, uh, John Conyers has spent a good part of his professional career uh, in, in Congress uh, focusing on health care issues, and uh, he had a plan for a single, a single payer plan. H.R. 676 is what the bill was, H.R. 676. <laughs> I knew you would remember that. Uh, <laughs> but I was I was quite a fan of, of John Conyers, and he was I considered him a, a personal friend, although he may not have considered me one, but we met on several occasions, and I've attended his funeral uh, and just sat in the back as among all of his constituents and did not – did not seek out any notice or any special uh, recognition. I just wanted to be there uh, because I felt like he had done so much for me. Um, but John Conyers cared about the American people, and he wanted a plan that would take care of people in their time of need. He wanted people to be treated with dignity and respect when they got out of the hospital and treated, of course, with proper medical care uh, to keep them out. But uh, the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately, was a uh, – it was almost a crossword puzzle of ideas that were put together that, was, you know, got enough votes to pass. But it was not a plan that anyone had put together at the beginning and said, hey, this is what we really need, you know. Um, it was far, far from that. And, uh, you know, again, we missed an opportunity by not, put, by, by not putting John Conyers uh, in control of the legislation um, that would have resulted, I think, in a, a better Affordable Care Act. You're following Joe Siegel. Joe Siegel was the crafter of the um, uh, I Charge 676, a single-payer bill for John Conyers. He worked for him for over 15 years, and um, he just echoed the same thing. He said that um, he had to get behind and did get behind uh, the Affordable Care Act 
and really did so, and so did John Conyers, as a uh, a pre-support to single payer. They didn't like it, but it was better than nothing. So they thought it would be a good stepping stone into well, single payer. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, I can, I can, I mean, I wasn't close to John Conyers during that, that time. I wasn't it, part of his inner circle or anything, but I can assure you that was not his first choice. No, um, it was It wasn't either one of them. Yeah. But well, something had to so, be done for health care, though, at that time. Yeah. You're right yeah, about that. Yeah. And I, it was, you know, my objection is that, uh, and, and I just say this, and I'm not belittling or running President Obama down, but yeah, I was hoping that he was going to show some some real strong leadership and to say, you know, this is, you know, John Conyers, John Conyers' bill is the bill that I want passed. This is the bill that I'm going to that I'm going to push for, uh, and 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 used to the power of the presidency to win friends, influence people, and get votes. And you know, there are a lot of a lot of roads and bridges and and parks and high school stadiums that need to be built in the country. And, I, you know, with, with the, the power of the purse and the president uh, looking for votes in the House and Senate, uh, I believe that we, we could have done a lot better than we did. But, again, that's hindsight. I want to talk to about something that just came out in the news where Montgomery might lose or uh, Maxwell Air Force Base might relocate because of the quality of the schools, and I've always thought, because I'm a military brat, um, that if you have a waterway in a major city and an Air Force base, you should be a booming economy. But that's not the case in the home of the civil rights. Why do you think that is? Why don't you think that things are better, or they should be better than they are? Well... I think it's because of the the, uh, the 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 lack of leadership from uh, our politicians in Alabama. Um, you know, I I ran as a to be an education governor, and I proposed you know universal pre-K and free education, higher education, community college. Uh, uh, junior college, college, or you know, even going after uh, higher education degrees paid for by the state, uh, which would have been paid for by the Alabama Education Lottery, and we also had a plan to to uh, connect all of our rural communities with uh, opportunities to basically to have Zoom calls for education, but. You know, at that time it was uh, called distance learning, and uh, yeah, we were trying to uh, change our constitution to increase property taxes. I wanted to tax the timber companies, um, and you know, all of those measures basically failed. Uh, the voters, uh, with the help of twenty million dollars that was illegally laundered into Alabama by the Mississippi Choctaw Indians, defeated the 
referendum that would have given our children a chance and a hope and a dream of being able to go to college for free. Uh, it defeated our ability to give every mother and father a chance to drop their kids off in the morning at a quality early learning center. Um, and, of course, it defeated our effort to to uh, wire all of our rural communities into uh, justice learning. We were able to do a lot. We did create 72 model early learning centers. We raised test scores and, and, and decreased dropout rates and created a national a state reading program that was the national model. Um, and, you know, we did, we did an awful lot in education, but we could have done a lot more. But, you know, when you have, um, when you have a state board of education that, uh, promotes high schools like Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and, uh, you know, anyway, I'm picking on the, the state leadership a little bit, but, you know, we, we need to move beyond the past and, and on to the future and it can be done. Um, and, you know, it's just uh, finding the right kind of political leadership that will that will work toward uh, raising compensation for teachers and, uh, of course, you know, teacher testing and and requiring that we have the best teachers in the classroom. So I was listening to a broadcast uh, before I, I jumped onto your 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 station um, about our friend Mike Espy in Mississippi and. You know, I've been looking at these uh, these Senate races in, in Georgia, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Colorado, Arkansas, uh, Montana, Maine, and Iowa. And, you know, I, I took my eyes off of Mississippi for a long time because even though I've been a, I've been a big fan of Mike Espy's for, for, you know, since he emerged in Congress and, uh, he is he is quite a capable uh, man and a has the ability to win this win this U.S. Senate race in Mississippi. Um, it's getting closer. He's outraged his opponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shine has been taken off of Trump to some degree. His his numbers are not going to be what they were in 2016, even in Mississippi and Alabama. So we we've actually. You know, I, I don't want to be, you know, a dreamer on this, but, you know, there's even a shot for Doug Jones to pull this thing out. He, Trump started out with a 28% lead over Biden in Alabama, and it has been diminishing day by day and week by week, and Doug Jones has been running a very good campaign. Um, and, you know, he has, he has a shot at it. But... I want to go on just for a minute since we have a little time. I, I'm I'm predicting a win also in uh, in Georgia. Um, I think we'll win in North Carolina. Um, keep in mind, in North Carolina, uh, in the last 20 years, there have been five different governors, and four of those have been Democrats. So North Carolina is not adverse to electing a Democrat. So I'm I'm, I'm I'm thinking we're going to take that Senate seat. You think Jeremy um, Harris will win? Ah, good Lord, I sure, I sure hope so. He's, you know, he's such a fine young man, and, and Lindsey Graham is such a creep. Um, you know, it is, 
Yeah, and again, keep in mind, South Carolina has elected a black U.S. senator, Tim Scott. So it's not a racial. It's not. It's not race that's 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 keeping Jamie Harrison back. So I think Jamie Harrison has got a shot. But it's you know, it's the polls are not looking good, but. They're not looking terrible either, so I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping Jamie Harrison pulls that one off. That would just be a beautiful win. Um, it would. It really it really would. Um, I was uh, also going to ask something along the lines of out of town people wanting to make investments, and I think any state, it could be Alabama, but any state, but they want to make money. And they come into a town and don't keep a quality of um, anything to where the properties they, they do get, they turn them into ghettos. But see, they're out of town landlords. They just collect money. What do you think? Or what do you say to that? I think there needs to be better housing legislation. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not just not just uh, in the South, but all over. There's you know the People are forced to live in, in substandard housing, and uh, you know very little is uh, there's very little that has been done about it. And it needs it is a national scandal, and it needs to be it needs there needs to be some federal legislation that would uh, force landlords to keep up uh, uh, their properties. I, I will tell you this story. I shortly before the the election in 2000 and my election in 2002, I was visiting a, uh, uh, an apartment complex just one block off of one of the major roads in Alabama in downtown Birmingham. And um, there had been three murders there in one, one week. I believe it was one week. Maybe it was two murders in one week or three murders in two weeks. But Anyway, I went over and I walked in and to this, it was a, a, a dusty yard, no grass. Uh, there were a couple of kids sitting on the stoop. And I, I walked up, I wanted to see what was, what was inside. And I walked, started walking up the stairs and there was this stench of feces and there was, I walked up a little bit more and on the stoop there were bags of garbage. But, you know, and it was, this was a section eight Believe housing project that was subsidized by the by the federal government. Um, yet there's no, you know, apparently there was no inspection or oversight of at least of this particular housing project. So um, there's got to be some some mechanism to ensure that people who pay good money for a place to live actually have a livable place. Oh, I agree, especially if it's a capital city. And it should be anywhere, whether it's a capital city or not. But you'd be surprised in capital cities. They don't look like the capital cities. <laughs> and it's sad for um, it's, it's sad for the surrounding owners because it brings property values down. And it also can cost you opportunities if out-of-towners come in and see this. They, do they really want to invest? Do they really want to... <laughs> You wouldn't stay there. Now, we, when, when I was uh, when I was governor, we had something called we called it the Model Cities Program, and um, I would fly into a smaller community and 
we, it was, they would know in advance that I was coming in, but it was, uh, they, you know, the idea was that they were to treat me like I was a, a visiting CEO who was looking, looking for a place to build a plant. And so we would land at their local airport and they would take us on a, on a, on a tour. We would ask to see, well, you know, we want to see the nearest high school or we want to see the nearest elementary school. Uh, they wouldn't know exactly what we were going to ask for, but, um, you know, we, then we would say, you know, do you have an industrial uh, park or do you, where, do you, you know, where would you suggest that we look for land to build a automobile plant? Anyway, in the process, we had staffers who were taking notes and making, uh, making, you know, thinking about what we could do to, you know, improve the looks of the airport or improve the route from the airport to the schools or to improve the route to City Hall or uh, wherever they were going, uh, wherever a CEO might go. So, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. And it, it does impact um, the ability of a community to recruit better, more and better uh, jobs, higher-paying jobs, if, if the – if the CEO visiting uh, or whomever is the scout for the for the corporation is turned off by what they see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and also, you know, you're not just talking about the, you know, um, the, you know, you going around as a CEO. Um, you also attract crime if the place is not kept up, and that's another thing for. Uh, people who are in the military, they want to move their families, and anybody wants to move to a, a safer place, but if you're not keeping the place up, or if out of towners. You know, and I say this because I was in Washington, D.C. when they were doing a major cleanup of Southeast, and one of the things they were looking at was out of town landlords, because they never really, most of them never kept the places up. And uh, they were purging people. They said, hey, we give you a certain amount of time to clean up, or you're out of here. Well, if you go to the capital city now and southeast and other places, those places are now model model places. They look like something out of Georgetown or Old Town, <laughs> you know, and where uh, maybe eight to ten years ago, they didn't look like that at all. So they've done a 360 completely. But, the, but you know, the, the community, the city, the county, the state, the federal government needs to be proactive on, on these things. And if you have a good... If you have a, if you've elected a good mayor, they're going to look at, um, you know, what you were talking about military bases. They would look at the the entrance of the military base, and they would think, you know, is this a place that I would want to drive to every day or drive out of every day? What what can we do to inspire a development in in and around this this military facility that would that would give it a facelift and make it attractive so that people would want to be stationed at that at that military base. Um, and there's plenty, plenty of money to do this kind of stuff with. This is, you know, this is just a choice by mayors and governors. Um, you know, if they want to they want to make it happen, they can they can turn these places into um, you know, magnet communities where people want to live. Amen. You know, I was um, I tell you a little something funny. I had to take a train up north. 
and I had to go to uh, the, the wonderful, this is like probably five years ago, the wonderful Washington, D.C. from Birmingham, and I had to take the train. This is before they fixed the train station up. And I took pictures, and I sent them off to several people, and they immediately texted me back, where the hell are you? <laughs> I said, I'm just perfect hands. Uh, Amtrak station and my own niece goes, that looks like something out of Halloween. <laughs> so, um, but they've really fixed that area up over there in Birmingham. It looks a lot better. You know, it could look even better. Well, you know, we most of these cities, like Mobile, Montgomery, and Birmingham, all had um, all had these uh, railway stations that were built in the 20s, uh, and, and they were uh, like Art Nouveau kind of design, like like the like Union Station. And mm-hmm. the, the sad part is that we did not have the foresight to keep those structures, but tore them down, and, and uh, that's how you know we we got it. the rail railway stations at least got into the dilapidated uh, condition that they had been in. Uh, most of them, have, have, most of the cities have, have changed, but um, but there were some beautiful structures in place at one point. Mm-hmm. Do you think Montgomery will ever get back its Amtrak? It's a major city that does not have a a um well, it's, you know, it's, it's going to take national leadership to, you know, focus on, on you know, fast rail and try to, you know, try to create a, a system that makes sense. When I was governor, I keep harking back to my days, but I met with uh, Roy Barnes and we had reached an agreement that we would build a uh, build out to our respective state lines. I was going to build from from Birmingham to to uh, the Georgia Georgia line, and he was going to uh, carry uh, the martyr system, and we were going to meet there, so we would have a fast rail from Birmingham to the Atlanta airport because you know so many so many people just drive to the Atlanta airport to catch plane, and it's it'd be you know it opened the door from from Birmingham to Atlanta. Those kind of projects are are pretty easy to do. It's just a matter of having the right leadership that wants to get it done. Yeah. We've got the Supreme Court thing now going on, and they say it looks like this person, lady me, um, get in. And I want to know your, your thoughts on the Supreme Court, because um, Obama could not get anybody through. And when the Democrats had the House and the Senate, well, I don't think they were really pushing to get anyone nominated to the Supreme Court or at least looked at. What do you think of that? Well, I say, you know, President Obama did not use the power of his office to the fullest possible extent uh, to for the benefit of the people. Uh, he was he was rather timid, shy. Didn't didn't want to rock the boat, and as a result, we didn't get a lot of uh, members of we didn't get the confirmations that we should have, in, in my judgment. Um, and he also he also was very con- you know he was looking for somebody who would who would be acceptable to the Republicans and not um, uh, you know not cause a big uproar as opposed to. 
Donald Trump, who wants to cram down, cram people down our throats. Um, well, you know, what we're looking at now is we're going to look, we're going to be looking at a, a 5-4 Republican majority, uh, on the court that is going to at least 5-4, maybe 6-3. And I think the only thing left for, for a President Biden is to expand the a uh, number of justices on the court, and I think he is uh, is justified in doing so because the court does not reflect the the, uh, the the population of the United States. I think that the court should reflect um, in proportion the number of African Americans, of, of people of color, of minorities we have, both in terms of uh, you know, their gender and of their ethnic, uh, I'm not ethnic origin, but their, um, you know, the color of their skin. So I think, I think the, the court is ripe for, uh, several more appointments of, of people of color and, and predominantly women. So, so, you know, we'll see what happens. I wanted to speak on, um, something that most people never thought would happen, especially after many people have gone to school, gotten their education, whether it be by trade and or traditional, and uh, they come out with college debt they can't possibly really pay back in their lifetime because they will never be making that much a year. What do you say to these crazy college, uh, <laughs> you don't understand what I'm saying, the tuition thing. No one can pay that back, and, and the cost of living hasn't risen. In about 25 or 30 years. Well, I, I think that in many situations, uh, the college administrators are paid. You know, I know this is a, it's minuscule, but I think they're, you know, the, the salaries we pay people for doing the kind of work that ought to be philanthropic. Um, but uh, we pay we pay an awful lot for the administration. We don't pay a lot necessarily for professors. Um, and you know, the, the, the someone just needs to look at the at, at, at the way money is spent by colleges and universities. I know when I was governor, again, I opposed tuition increases. Um, you know, for one thing, I was still kind of agitated that the people had voted down, you know, free college education. But I, at the same time, I hated to see students having to pay, you know, get a 15% increase in tuition in one year. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just, uh, you know, this whole thought about college education and uh, student debt has got to be addressed by a new administration. And, you know, I'm still of the belief that that any child who stays in school and stays out of trouble and makes their grades and graduates from high school should be able to go on to and get a higher education, whether that's in a culinary school or a junior college uh, or, or, or a university. And there should it should be free. And the student debt that remains in the United States should be forgiven, and I'm not sure, you know, exactly how or or, um, or how we can how we can manage to do that. But 
I do know that you can't you can't saddle people with that kind of debt and expect them to be um, contributing members of a booming uh, economy. You know, they just don't have the money to uh, to buy a new car, to buy a new house, or to buy a new a new washer or dryer. Um, so they they can't help the economy because we've got them strapped with this uh, student debt. So I think it makes it just makes good sense for us to find a way to forgive the, the student loans that, that are remaining. The last 15 years, we've lost a lot of the middle class. Uh, what was the middle class? And now, with COVID, you're mentioning housing, with people's credit being destroyed through no fault of their own because the government told them to stay home and jobs couldn't come back. It'll be a miracle if the majority will be able to get a home um, because of their credit. Uh, and these are people, many, who have um, technical skills or college degrees. Um, the bank gets back the house and the place is turned to, you know, slums. Do you see any positivity coming our way with um, getting back a middle class, doesn't the middle class help support the people above them? Well, I, again, the only hope we have is Joe Biden being elected because he does, he does understand the, the struggles of, of middle class, I said middle income America and of people even trying to make it into the, the middle income. Um, so it would be my hope that he would entertain, uh, a new Fair Housing Act that would, you know, would replicate some of the uh, housing uh, um, subsidies that um, military, some some of our military are able to uh, access. But yeah, we 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 did, you know, and, and some a program like that is good for the good good for the country, good for the economy, and you know, puts people to work and. And you know, and helps propel um, the growth of our of our economy. So it's a it's a win win if you if you try to you know it's rising tide lifts all boats theory. You know, it actually works. So hopefully, uh, you know, and and hopefully Joe Biden will will uh, will show us what he means when he you know talks about being a, a boy from Scranton. Um, versus uh, the New York Wall Street guy. Your book came out earlier this year about stealing our democracy, and we still have people in the streets marching. We still have riots also going on, and uh, the criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah and, for, and, for, and for good cause, too, by the way. They're not marching mm -hmm. or protesting just, just to get out of the house. Right. Um, They're putting their lives on the line. Yeah, uh, and you know, my yeah, the, the justice system. I, I've written, I've written extensively about changes that are needed in our criminal justice system. I wrote from prison a, something called a, a primer for presidential candidates back in 2015 on criminal justice reform, and got it to every member of Congress and to all people running for president in 2016. Um, there's, uh, many of the changes that we need can be made 
with the stroke of a pen from President Obama, who did not do it, uh, and or a, a, a Biden administration, um, you know, you can direct the, you can you can give instructions to the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons that would dramatically change the way we run our prisons. And it's everything from, you know, providing, allowing for uh, access to free online education courses. When I was, I was in prison for five years, and we could never convince the FBOP or the Obama administration to allow inmates to access free college education courses, which are offered by over 400 institutions in the United States. But they're, for, they're forbidden. They're forbidden from federal prison. Makes no sense. Uh, but anyway, I could go on and on. But the one thing I want to talk about before we leave is is this uh, assault on blacks by police, resulting in. You know, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, or even more dramatically, Eric Gardner. You can look at Michael Brown. Or you can look at the, uh, uh, the murder of Trayvon Martin. But in, in many of these cases, and it goes on and on, I could name, you know, we could, we could both just start throwing out names and never stop. But the way to put an end to this is, is quite simple. Um, and, Yes, we need policing reform, but we but we need to change how our justice system operates. And let me explain. Prosecutors have unlimited um, ability to present false evidence. They can they can present false evidence or withhold exculpatory evidence with impunity. They, Supreme Court gave them blanket immunity so they could not be sued. Uh, and even under the Obama administration, Elena Kagan, the Solicitor General, argued to the U.S. Supreme Court that U.S. citizens don't have a right not to be framed. Uh, you know, it makes no sense, but that's actually the law in the United States. So the way that the, what happens in a grand jury where there, it is a secret proceeding and there is no judge or, or any lawyer for the victim's family, um, who a, a victim who's been murdered by police, there's, there's, so the prosecutor goes in, whether it's the district attorney or attorney general, and he or she presents whatever evidence they want the, the jurors to hear. Well, there are a couple of immediate problems. One, we don't know who those grand jurors are. In a in a criminal trial or a civil trial, you get to voir dire, ask questions of the potential jurors. In Breonna Taylor's case, for example, we don't know. All of those jurors may have been related to a police officer, or they may have been members of the Klan. You know, so <clears throat> the first thing we have to do is to provide the right to family members of victims of police violence to have a lawyer present in a grand jury <clears throat> to voir dire the grand jury to make sure that it is racially balanced and the grand jury is uh, that they are indeed impartial. Um, there is no check on that right now. Secondly, a lawyer for the family should have the right to object 
in advance to any any testimony or evidence that the prosecutor plans to present or omit before the grand jury. And we do this now in civil cases, in civil depositions, where monetary damages are at stake. In the slip and fall case, the lawyers get together and say, well, I'm going to introduce this evidence, I'm going to have this witness, and there are objections, and those objections are heard by a judge, and the judge says, yes, you can, and no, you can't. Um, and if we provide that due process procedure in a civil deposition where monetary damages are at stake, surely, to goodness, we ought to provide that due process safeguard where someone's life is at issue. So um, the, the, the final thing that I would ask that Congress do is to allow this lawyer for the family to make a public report, um, not mentioning the jurors' names, but telling, you know, giving a public report of what happened in the grand jury. So we have a better informed public. Uh, a better informed public means that they <clears throat> there, there's going to be a better chance that they have faith in the justice system, and that strengthens our democracy. It also would decrease um, it would serve as a deterrent to police from committing those kinds of acts in the first place. My last question to you has to do with voting, since we're now uh, in the throes of, uh, you know, getting the absentee ballot just for the last day to register to vote. Uh, Ex-felons, people who paid their debt to society with uh, petty Petty crimes don't have rights to vote back. And we're talking about even though they're still in a pack of dumb or doing some crazy stuff in their teens, they're still fighting for their rights to vote. And then on the flip side of that, every 25 years, this voter's right thing has to come up. And people are afraid that with a conservative Supreme Court, a lot of those rights will be whittled away. What do you say to these issues of voters' rights and, and excellence? You want to gain their right to vote back. Well, one thing I want to do is, is, is give a shout-out to Thad McClammy, who's been an advocate, uh, along with others, of restoring the right to vote of felons. But clearly, this ought to be automatic. It, it shouldn't even, it shouldn't be, should not be a question. And it, it, I don't think we can, I don't know that we need to wait for every state to take action. I think, again, this is something Congress could do. It's a no-brainer. If somebody's somebody's been convicted of a crime and if they've served their sentence and if they've paid their fine, then all of their rights ought to be restored automatically. You shouldn't have to jump through hoops to get your right to vote back. Um, It's insane. Uh, And it's just another another way of of trying to, to shape the outcome of elections. When you, you know, and it started back, you know, we, you know after the, uh, you know, during the days of slavery and during the, after the Civil War, uh, when southern states, Mississippi, Alabama, and others around the country took up this, this uh, mantra that they were going to, you know, reserve the right to vote to whites only and men only and you know, no, no free, freed slaves would, would qualify. And, you know, they, uh, came up with this list of, of any kind of crime sitting on the sidewalk or whatever would, and that would result in not only forfeiting your, it'd, it'd be a felony, uh, you'd, you'd, 
lose your right to vote and lose your Second Amendment right because they didn't want freed slaves, after all, to have a firearm. Mm -hmm. So we need to change all that, and hopefully uh, a Biden-Harris administration will do so. Thanks so much for coming back with us. I really appreciate it. And uh, we've learned well, an awful lot. I know your book has done very well. Well, we are we're we're still um, we're still out there. We were number one on Amazon and a bestseller on Amazon. And um, it's uh, yeah, if you're interested in 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 making police prosecutors and the president of the United States accountable for their abuses of power, take a look at Stealing Our Democracy by Don Sigelman. Um, and, um, yeah, let's keep talking. Let's change this country and this state and make it what we know it can and should be. We, there's a lot that, that we can and should be doing, and I think we will do. Uh, we've just got to first get ourselves to the voting booth on Tuesday, November 3rd, and um, change the direction of the state and, and the course of the nation. Amen. I'll be, I've already, I've voted, I voted last Wednesday, so I, I exercise my right. I hope everybody else gets out there, too. I'm, I'm registering people to vote as we speak, and I thank you so much. We invite you to come back after the election. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you do. Bye-bye. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye.